One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, Come, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armour bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder, hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armour bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to it, up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armour bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armour bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them, them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using hands and feet, and his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and the ground shook. shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army's melt, army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armour bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul, Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Paul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had, been, who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to, Israel, to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. That was well done, wasn't it? Very well done. Good job, girls. Um, we're going to look a bit more at that second passage in... 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now maybe just turn the um, gain down a little bit. Sam, thanks. Um, 
Kids, I'm going to talk for about 20 or 25 minutes. You think you can listen along for that? Excellent. I think actually we've been sitting down for a while. Why doesn't everyone stand up? And kids and adults, if you like, take 10 seconds to shake as many wiggles out as you can. Ready, set, go. Go. Okay, that's, ten, that's enough. Take a seat. Uh, there, there will be a question time after at the end as well. So if you have any questions that come up on the way through, make a mental note or write them down. You can ask them a bit later on. I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that today you'll give us the kind of bold trust in you uh, that makes us not worried about what we see around us, but confident that you are the God who saves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1988, there was a few young men from Jamaica who decided they wanted to compete at the Winter Olympic Games in the bobsled, which some of you may have heard about. Has anyone been to Jamaica? I haven't either, but one thing I know about Jamaica is it's very hot and there is not much snow or ice. And they wanted to compete in the Winter Olympic Games in the bobsled. So the odds were very much against them. If you want to know how that went, you can watch the movie Cool Runnings. I'm sure it's very accurate. I love, I love stories where the heroes have the odds against them and they manage to succeed still somehow. This week I was looking up some famous battles in history where there was a massive army against a tiny little one and one of the most famous ones that I came across was in 480 BC where there was only 7,000 Greek soldiers against more than 70,000 Persian soldiers. And the small group of Greek soldiers managed to hold off the massive group of Persian soldiers for three days. Now, eventually they were defeated, but they were still heroes. It was still a victory because of how long they were able to hold, off, hold them off. And that kind of battle with many against a few, against overwhelming odds, it's a bit like what we've been seeing in 1 Samuel over the past couple of weeks, including today. If you were here last week, you might remember that the tiny Israelite army was facing a massive Philistine army, and the king of Israel, Samuel, was very afraid. He was worried, and he was getting even more worried because his army was getting smaller and smaller and smaller every day because his soldiers were deserting him. He got down to only 600 men against thousands of men. And in that moment of fear, Saul did not trust that God could save them. Well, today we have a similar story. It's a similar situation, but this time it's Saul's son, Jonathan. Again, it's a battle against overwhelming odds, but this time it's a man who had a big trust in a big God, and it's going to leave each of us with a question, and the question is this, do I trust that God can save, even if it looks impossible? Do I trust that God can save, even against great odds? So I thought maybe I could start by trying to paint a picture of what the battlefield looked like, so we can get an image in our head. There was a valley, and on one side of the valley was the, the massive Philistine army in a place called Micmash, which is a pretty cool-sounding place. It's fun to say, Micmash. It would not have been a cool place to be, though, because the Philistine army was there. On the other side of the valley was the much smaller army of Israel and Saul. They're at a place called Gibeah. 
Now, Saul is not as worried as he was last week because there is a valley between the big Philistine army and their army, so they're kind of less likely to get attacked. But neither is he taking the fight to the Philistines to get them out of the Israelite territory and save the Israelites from being oppressed by the Philistines. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree doing nothing, we're told at the beginning. But there is one man who is doing something. That is Saul's son's Jonathan. Saul's son, Jonathan. And when we see what Jonathan's plan is, it seems like bravery beyond sense. Let me read verse 1 again. Chapter 14, verse 1. On one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I mean, think about how brave or perhaps how crazy this seems. There are just two of them, Jonathan and his armour-bearer. Now, last week, Saul was worried because his army was only 600, and that was fair enough because it was against thousands. But Jonathan and his armour-bearer are just two, and only one of them has a sword, and they want to go over to the Philistine camp. But very quickly, we discover that Jonathan's bravery is not about his self-confidence as being a good soldier, a good fighter, nor is it even about the crazy bravery of a young man just charging into battle, which young men apparently do sometimes. You, you might have heard, I think I've said before, that uh, young men, particularly under 25, have to pay higher car insurance policies because the insurance companies know that they have more car crashes. And so the insurance policy goes higher. And in fact, the, the doctors also know that young men's brains don't finish developing until they get to about 25. And I see the young women nodding along at this point. <laughs> and the thing about the young men's brains that don't develop until they're 25 is the ability to assess risk, to see something and go, oh, actually, man, that's not a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Which is why young men are so good for charging into battle, because they just go. <laughs> but that's not what's driving Jonathan's bravery here, and we see that. He was brave because he had a bold trust in a big God. He trusted that God could do anything. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Jonathan said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You hear that? Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Of course, numbers matter when it comes to battles. If I've got this many people and the enemy has this many people, then that makes a difference. And Saul knew that. That's why he was so worried last week when his army was so small and getting smaller and the Philistine army was so big and terrifying. Saul knows that numbers matter in battle. But Jonathan knows something else. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Although you notice as we read on that he doesn't just assume that God will save them, he comes up with a little test to see whether this is what God wants him to do, to attack the Philistines. Now Jonathan's test, you know, to see how the, whether the Philistines call them up there, that's not given us as a model for how we should test whether God wants us to do something or not. What it is doing is showing us that Jonathan's confidence is because he trusts God 
and not because he trusts himself. He will only do this if he knows that this is what God wants him to do. And so it's only after he gets the green light from God that he goes up and attacks the Philistines because he believes that God can save even by just the two of them. And, you know, Jonathan knew this. <coughs> Excuse me. Jonathan knew this. Jonathan knew that God could save by just a few because God had done this before. Back in the past when Israel's army was being led by a man named Gideon, God said to Gideon, your army is too big. You need to make it smaller. And he kept making it smaller and smaller and smaller because God wanted to make it absolutely clear that it was not the size of the army that was winning, it was God who was winning, no matter how many there were. So Jonathan knew that God could save with only a few. And in fact, Jonathan's father Saul, the king, knew this as well, in theory. He knew the stories as well. The difference was that Jonathan trusted that in a real-life situation when it actually matters. You see, it's one thing to believe something about God in theory. It's easy to say, yes, I believe that in theory. But the test comes when that actually lands in your own life in a practical way. That's the pointy end of trusting God. That's when it actually needs to make a difference in real life. Like when God says, this is the good thing that I want you to do, and just trust me with how it turns out, even if that's a bit scary. I had a very small example of this during the week when we were selling our trampoline because we don't have space for it in our yard anymore. And so we were selling the trampoline. And I don't know if you've sold something secondhand before. You always have the choice you've got to make about how honest you're going to be about describing what it is that you're selling. Am I going to tell the absolute truth about what it is that I'm selling and trust God with whether it actually gets sold or not? Or am I going to not lie, but maybe not tell all of the things that I need to tell? Now, that's a very small example. It's easy to do it in small ways when the cost is not that big. But what if I was trying to sell a house? That's when it becomes a bit more difficult. Or trying to get a job. Or trying to impress someone in a relationship. Or kids, when you've done something wrong and you're worried about getting into trouble. In that situation, can I trust to do the thing that God wants me to do, that is, in this case, be honest, tell the truth, and trust God with how that turns out? If I tell the truth, my house not, might not be worth as much as I want it to be. If I tell the truth, I might not get that job. If I tell the truth, that person might not like me as much anymore. If I tell the truth, I might get in trouble. See, the difference between Saul and Jonathan is trusting God in a real situation when it lands in your own life. That's when it makes a difference. So coming back to our passage again now, from bravery that seems beyond belief, we discover a victory that seems beyond belief. So you see Jonathan and his armour bearer have to climb up a cliff to get to the Philistines. And when the Philistines see them, I wonder, kids, can you tell me, were they worried? Were the Philistines worried? No, the Philistines were not worried at all because it was only two people. And they were from the people that they had already defeated in the past. And only one of them has a sword. 
And Jonathan literally has an uphill battle. You know the expression, fighting an uphill battle? That's literally what Jonathan was doing. It means you're doing something that is really hard. It's hard to fight someone who is higher than you. And Jonathan was literally climbing up a cliff with his hands and feet. And so the Philistines were not worried. They had every advantage. Can you hear the mocking and the ridicule in their voices? Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. And that's what it would have looked like as Jonathan climbs up the cliff with his hands and his feet. The Philistines think they're going to deal with these guys pretty easily. Come up here, they said, and we will teach you a lesson. But their mockery ends pretty quickly when Jonathan arrives. No one could have expected what happens next. Two people against who knows how many, at least 20, but probably more, in an area the size of half a soccer field. Imagine... Kids, imagine if you're playing bull rush on an area the size of half a soccer field or football, two against 20. Who do you think is going to win? Two against 20. Two against more than 20. But the two in this case won. In fact, they won easily. But, in this, but here's the thing. That was a difficult victory, two against 20, but that was just the beginning. Yes, Jonathan and his armour bearer won a small battle against a larger force, but look at what happens next. It's like that was the first domino of the rest that are about to fall. In verse 15, there was a massive panic that struck all of the Philistines, not just the people who were in that field that day, but all of the Philistines in the field, in the camp, in the Philistine outposts, in the raiding parties that had been sent to attack different places in Israel. This was way beyond what you would expect from just one small battle that Jonathan had won. And so we're told at the end of verse 15, even the ground shook and it was a panic sent by God. This is dominoes falling everywhere. The Philistines are collapsing. The army is melting away, it says. That great terrifying beast of an army that Saul was so scared of last week now looks like a snowman on a hot day. It is melting And in verse 18, that's the point where Saul and the rest of the Israelite army get involved, but they don't have to do very much because reinforcements come from nowhere. The Israelites that had fled before to hide in holes in the ground, they come back to join the fight. The Israelites that had deserted to join the Philistines previously, they turn around and start fighting against the Philistines. And even the Philistines start fighting against each other. Do you see how the victory is growing and growing and growing? No one could have expected this, not even Jonathan. But the thing is, Jonathan trusted that God could save by many or by few. And that's what Saul should have trusted last week. Last week, Saul was panicking because his army was only down to 600 men and getting smaller. And we might think, well, that's fair enough. 600 against thousands is is difficult. But God did it with two, just two. And Jonathan trusted that he could when Saul didn't. And so we're told at the end of the passage in verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. God could save by many or by few, and he did. What Israel needed was a leader who could trust that. 
And in this situation, that was Jonathan. He was the leader who trusted God. And in that sense, as we think about this story, Jonathan is not firstly an example for us, for you and me. Jonathan is, is an example of the kind of leader that Israel needed. They needed a king who trusted God. And so Jonathan is firstly an example of Jesus. See, we normally talk about putting our trust in Jesus, and that's right. But Jesus is also the perfect example of someone who trusted God himself. So Hebrews chapter 12 describes Jesus as the pioneer of our faith. It says this, Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, if you think about what a pioneer does, a pioneer goes ahead for other people to follow. You think about, you know, someone cutting away the bushes and the trees so that other people can follow behind. That's what Jesus did in the kind of trust that he had in God. He shows what it looks like to fully trust his father and he says, follow me, follow my example. In fact, Jesus trusted God to save his very life, even to the point of death. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. See, Jesus trusted his father to save him from death, after he was dead. That is a bold trust. It's a trust in a God who can do all things. And that's exactly what happened. God raised Jesus to life again. And now Jesus tells us to follow where he has led, to trust that God can save no matter how bad it looks because of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is both the example of the kind of trust we should have and the reason why we can trust. So I want to finish now by asking two questions. The first is the question that I started with. That is, do you trust that God can save no matter what? No matter how bad it looks, no matter what the odds. See, we don't fight battles like Israel did with swords and spears or the modern equivalent. We follow a king whose kingdom is not of this world. But more importantly, we follow a king who has already won the war. And so our battle is just to trust him with that. And so the question is, do we trust that Jesus has already won for us? The salvation that Jesus has won is the salvation of our souls and eternal life. And Jesus has done that no matter how much it might seem like the odds are against us in your life. And he wants us to trust him. And that means that we don't try to save ourselves with religion or with trying to impress God with good works. Last week, you might remember that Saul tried to earn God's favour by sacrifices, but he didn't trust him. That's the emptiness of false religion that seeks God's favour, but doesn't actually trust God to save. You know, we try to impress God, we make sacrifices. But Jesus says, no, 
we live for God and we make sacrifices because we are confident that he has already saved us, not to try to get into God's good books. That's what it means to trust that Jesus has saved. And it also means that we don't run away in fear because we don't really believe that Jesus could save me, because it's too much of an uphill battle to save me. Now, I I know I talk about this a fair bit, but it's so important that I'm always going to talk about it because we must not ever forget it. That trusting that God can save against all odds means that we can be bold to come to God no matter what is happening in our lives. It will give us the kind of boldness to trust God that Jonathan had. That's the kind of trust that this chapter is talking about, that God can save no matter what. That's the first question, which is about ourselves. The second question is about other people. That is, do I trust that God can save others, even when it seems unlikely? I'm sure that most of us know people who we think, I just can't imagine that those people would ever become Christians, that those people would put their trust in Jesus. And I've known people in the past who have become Christians, and I still found myself thinking, is this real? And I, I kind of pinched myself, are, are they pretending? You know, am I kind of being filmed in a, in a joke? It just, I just didn't think it was likely. But they had. They had put their trust in Jesus, and their lives had been completely changed. But even then, when I, the next time when I come across someone who is also like that, and I think there's no way that they could become Christians. And so because of that, I'm not bold knowing that God can save, like Jonathan was, even against all odds. And you know what I do when I'm not bold? I keep quiet. I don't speak because I'm more afraid of what they might think of me than I am confident that God could save them. So I wonder if we could take some of Jonathan's boldness this Christmas season as we speak to people about what Christmas is really about and as we invite people to come to church with us at Christmas, the kind of boldness that knows that God can save no matter what. Imagine if we had the kind of boldness that Jonathan has in this chapter, that confidence that God could save no matter what happens, that he has the power to save us and that he has the power to change the hearts and lives of the people around us. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know that we, even when we say that we trust you, face times when we find it difficult to actually live out that trust. And so we ask that you'll give us a great confidence in that, to know that you are the great God who can save even against all odds. And we ask that you help us to live lives increasingly that trust completely in that. In Jesus' name, amen.